0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working, and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda.
1: Enlightened self-interest is by caring for all of humanity and the community of life by caring for my local ecosystem, that is the most effective way to care for myself and my family and those closest to my heart. So it's a complete shift in perception that makes us understand that what we do to the world, we ultimately do to each other.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Daniel Wall to the podcast. Daniel is a consultant and educator specializing in biologically inspired whole systems design and transformational innovation. He currently works at Gaia Education, a leading provider of sustainability education that promotes thriving communities within planetary boundaries. Triarchy Press published Daniel's first book, Designing Regenerative Cultures, in 2016. So thank you very much, Daniel, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast
1: glad to be on the show
0: right great, great so tell me a little bit about your background daniel and um what what you do at the moment
1: um i my, my background is i started off as a biologist um doing marine mammal research and at one point i had a key uh, moment where i realized that I could spend my life studying whales and dolphins and my grandchildren will probably only find them in the book of extinct species. And so I began to reorient it, what, what I was doing towards working with my own species in order to um, help the rest of the community of life to have a brighter, more thriving future. And um, since then, I've I've done a master's in holistic science at Schumacher College in 2001, 2002, which led me on to... Um, design as the way the rubber meets the road in terms of sustainability. And and, I then did a PhD in design for human and planetary health with the academic subtitle, A Holistic Integral Approach to Complexity and Sustainability. And that was in 2006. And after all that education, I really needed to test all those ideas in practice. And so from 2006 until now, I've worked in a very wide-ranging um area of fields from working with ngos uh, the global eco village network or an ngo called gaia education that i'm currently working two days a week as the um, head of design and innovation we we teach uh, sustainability capacity building courses both online and face-to-face in more than 50 countries around the world and um I've also worked with uh, UK Foresight on the future of climate change impact. I've worked for companies as a consultant um, on um, the circular economy and um, on on cleaning up the supply chain. Um, I work with other uh, online education organizations, writing curriculum. Um, I've been part of launching an initiative with the Global Commonwealth on uh, the regenerative development to reverse climate change initiative so yeah I I, I keep myself busy trying to um, find the right leverage points and the right points of intervention to create a better future for all of us
0: indeed and you mentioned your the wake-up call when you start to think about the the plight of some of these uh, uh, mammals some of these creatures Um, how bad do you think things are I mean, what are what are some of your biggest concerns right now uh, about the state of the world, the environment, climate change, things like that? And we can talk a little bit about you know some of the some of the uh, solutions, some of the the things that make you optimistic. But it's always good just to get a sense of the beginning of you know. Uh, do you think that the you know the flames have been fanned and that you know things aren't so bad, or are there one or two particular problems that, that terrify you?
1: Well, as a, as a member of the International Futures Forum, I spend a lot of time thinking about futures. And, um, this is a dangerous question. You might have to put a parental guidance on, on this particular show. Um, if I go into detail, but yeah, the quick answer would be, I think it's five past 12. Um, I don't think we, we actually have much more time to respond wisely to the converging crisis we're facing. Um, one of the leading issues is that if we don't, uh, take what was sort of agreed on in Paris at COP21 seriously, we might just get to the point that we trigger runaway climate change that is irreversible and that we um, basically then just have to manage a slow and painful descent of humanity into a not so bright future. And other issues that that I'm particularly concerned about is the danger of runaway tech, um, that we are currently not having ethical conversations around what kind of technologies we actually want on this planet and who has access to them. And the the self-defeating um, position that many people take is that the genie is out of the box and we won't be able to regulate it. If we don't create these monster technologies, then somebody else will. Um, I think it's quite dangerous to think that way and um, we really have to watch out that we don't live in a world where um, drones are controlling every step we take and where rather than technology being a servant to humanity and a better future for all, um, we become servants to uh, technology. And then all the other issues that, that were highlighted in the um Planetary boundaries work of the Stockholm Resilience Centre. Uh, we have issues with biodiversity loss, when one of the largest mass extinctions since life on Earth began, and um, because of climate change, the species are on the move. Um, whole ecosystems are shifting. Um, plants are migrating into areas where the pollinators aren't migrating into, and so we, we we haven't haven't even seen the beginning yet of of the unraveling of the fabric of life. Um, ocean plastics and the the amount of um, material that that we have uh, by creating a materials economy based on fossil fuels and its nasty byproducts. We've just emitted so many new chemicals into the environment that we don't actually know what mass experiment with the future of humanity and life on Earth we've unleashed. So, yeah, I think um, the horror scenarios of a not so wonderful dystopia. There are many, but um, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I don't believe that we have the possibility to turn this around and that we can turn crisis into into opportunity and um, that we actually already know how to do this. It's just that we currently don't have the political will and we're still stuck in a story that we tell about who we are and why we're here for and what we should be doing as successful human beings on planet earth. That is an outdated story that doesn't um, serve the complexity that, that we're currently facing with these converging crises any longer. And that that we need to um, reorient it. We need to find a much find answers to a much deeper question about the, the why we need to change before we um, will get active on the how and the what we need to change, which the answers for those questions we, By and large, already have.
0: Yes, balancing pessimism or realism with optimism is always a challenge for uh, people working in this area, what um, makes you optimistic? There's been tremendous momentum on various fronts really in the, in the over the last 20 years certainly over the last decade in terms of uh, the Paris Agreement, probably the culmination of one, one area but in terms of investment uh, in terms of green activities by large organisations, in terms of NGOs, in terms of awareness, what are a few things that make you feel optimistic and that you think have tremendous momentum for the future?
1: What I've observed in the last two or three years is that um, just as we had this phase where suddenly the term resilience came in to begin to replace um, this somewhat overused word sustainability, um, in, in recent years the word regenerative and um, a regenerative development way of working has gained enormously in strength. And um, what I like about that is that um, it addresses the core issues is that we actually need to regenerate the soils. We need to replant the forest that we, we have denuded the earth for, for millennia. And we really need to um it's not enough anymore to simply not do any more damage. We have done damage since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, or you could even say since the beginning of agriculture, in to, to the global system in such a way that that it we now are called to regenerate ecosystems functions everywhere around the planet. And the movement is growing. And also the, the, the movement of capital into these fields is, is almost scarily fast to the point that, um, again, that would flag up all sorts of issues for me that, that sometimes um, if too much money flows into a new field, it, it, we, we end up making mistakes because of that. But um, what I've seen in the last just, 3 or 4 years in terms of uh, the amount of people with like pr- private foundations family foundations large um foundations like the Rockefeller um, brothers fund being willing and and keen to invest in regenerative development um buying up degraded areas of land and and working intelligently on on increasing healthy ecosystems functions um increasing bioproductivity bringing back carbon into the soil. These are all much more systemic ways of responding to climate change, n- not with a carbon myopia focus, but with a with understanding that we can reverse climate change and at the same time increase bioproductivity on the planet and sh- begin the shift out of a fossil fuel-based economy towards a biomaterials-based um, regionally circular economy.
0: Yes, a lot of interesting ideas in there. What is this? What, what do you mean by regeneration?
1: Um, regeneration has multiple facets. It always has to be um, carefully attuned to the biocultural uniqueness of place.
0: Okay, so what's biocultural mean?
1: Biocultural means that in each place on the planet, each bioregion, each ecosystem has specific conditions with regard to climate, um, what grows there, what can be grown there, but also with regard to culture, the whole historical background of the culture in that place. And we're, we're beginning to work on solutions that are more honed in to that uniqueness of a particular region, which means that when it's attuned to the culture the culture the people the behavior change will will um set in much quicker because people will relate to the changes and when it's attuned to local bioproductivity and local ecosystems then we can start to work on regional production for regional consumption we we've created a globalized world which has given us a lot of wonderful things but um in the process of globalizing we stopped paying enough, uh, enough attention to meeting needs as close to the locality as possible. And what I've seen with big companies um, that even even in, in, in some of the consultancy jobs I've been doing, bigger companies are also starting to think about decentralized manufacturing, like the model that you bring in materials from all over the world to one central production site and then produce everything there and then send it out to lots of countries around the world where you have customers is slightly is beginning to shift um looking at at regional centers of production and supply change reducing the need for transport
0: right right. yeah well it's interesting and i'd be interested to get your thoughts here because as you said at the outset you know you, you have a sense that we're after midnight you know we're in the in the middle of the crisis, maybe somewhere you know at the tipping point so action urgent action is required, and this brings up this question really, as you say we live in a globalized world um this localized approach it seems somewhat at odds with the urgency of the situation in the sense that you know if you want to scale solutions which you have i suppose to some degree to do you know the, the scale of change that's required is absolutely massive we're talking about a global phenomenon at the moment how do, how do you reconcile the two
1: um it's it's a tall call it's it's difficult it's it's almost a paradox we're facing that that we will work we'll have to work with the large multinational companies and for example the shift towards electrified transport um we'll probably currently we have four million electric cars and by 2030 we'll probably have 200 million electric cars on the planet that's a massive shift that needs large infrastructure changes and, and and large companies to buy buy in which they're beginning to do um but the, the, the knee-jerk response that comes from kind of economics-trained people of how do we scale it up, to my mind, is actually the wrong question. Um, some, if, you, if you look at so many issues where sustainable technologies have been scaled up, in the scaling up, they often have become unsustainable in, in the way that they're implemented. And so what, what, to my mind, we need to do is to spread solutions that work but with this sensitivity to regional conditions.
0: Globally. So we're talking about doing this globally, Daniel. How do you do this at a local level, at a global level?
1: Through regional to regional collaboration. So you, you, you work globally together on making the global impact, getting to scale in terms of impact. And you, the, the, the systemic transformation that needs to go along with this which also will address not just environmental impact issues, but also the issues with, with unemployment that we have around the planet, is through this re-regionalization of production and consumption, through looking at bioregional development, at at um, responding region by region across China, the, the Chinese are working on this concept of the ecological civilization. They've actually bought into the need for more regionalized cycles of the circular economy. The, the, the key issue around the conversation with circular economy is that we need to look at at what scale, because the in order to minimize impact and, and maximize benefits, we were seeing more and more that coming to production cycles at the level of countries or even smaller makes a lot a lot of sense. And um, also the the new production. Um, methodologies of additive manufacturing through 3d printing and so on will enable us to very swiftly trans- transform our material culture to a-, a system where um materials cycle more at the regional scale um and it goes wow. in parallel it doesn't it doesn't mean that all the good work that has been done in these somewhat dinosaur-like extremely large um multinational corporations um, is in vain it's it's part of the transition towards like the 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 clever companies become international global knowledge holders and coordinators of this re-regionalization of production and consumption Right.
0: right it's interesting a lot of material there I mean, one of the things that I guess is an issue, a question in my mind here is, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the corporations and so forth and, you know, massive, uh, biggest organizations mm-hmm. in the world with, a, with tremendous power. And, and, you know, some of them are really committed to sustainability issues and, and so forth. But I'm just wondering in the same way that China, on the one hand, is, you know, as you say, putting forward this ecological civilization, you know, uh, idea. At the same time, it's building hundreds and hundreds of coal-fired you know, stations, which is... Absolutely terrible, and is a huge problem. So why are they doing that? Because that it's economically in their interest to do that. Large organisations, you know, in in one manner or form, are are there to make a profit. How, however optimistic you are about the increasing awareness and, um, I guess, thinking about ESG factors from various different investors, um, they will presumably only change when it's in their interest to do so. So you know. Um, uh, regionalization presumably is being driven to the extent that it is by cost factors. And I know that you know in the United States you've got this reshoring or, or things moving back into America, and not for a- any reason but that it's been in their economic interest of firms to do that. So I guess there is this question at the heart of this. But if major actors are driven by financial concerns and pretty narrowly financial concerns, although that's changing, that's a concern
1: yeah no you're absolutely right and, and that's why i mentioned earlier that what we really um need to pay more attention to is is almost you know the, the the famous napoleon quote dress me slowly i'm in a hurry Um we because we're in a hurry we need to actually go much more upstream where the roots of our unsustainability lie and and one of my mentors frity of capra um, put it one, wonderfully, he said that that the if you follow the, the rivers of the social, the economic, and the environmental crises upstream, you realize that they all come from the same source, which is a crisis of consciousness. It's a crisis of perception. It's um, the way we see our role as human beings within the wider community of life and the, the role we have um, – Biomimicry calls it life con- creates conditions conducive to life. That pretty much sums up the kind of economies we need to create in the c- future. Economies that create conditions conducive to life. And they have to pay attention to local ecosystems health. Because only, we will only have a healthy planet if we have plenty of healthy ecosystems all around the globe. And, and so the, the deeper change in the guiding narrative of our civilization has to be addressed and and when you ask me why am i hopeful that this conversation is beginning to reach more and more influential people and people like it's not some kind of pipe dream of idealist um radicals anymore it it it's moving center stage that people ask questions around meaning. People recognize that we need to think more systemically and understand that, that, that we aren't separate from nature. We are participants in a complex dynamic system that is the global... Bias yes.
0: this is an interesting question because we are participants in this and yet it seems from what you're talking about in, in in this idea of regeneration we are taking on the the challenge of re-engineering it of remaking our relationship to the world people are you know increasingly aware of this we talk about the anthropocene is there some sense of a an ideal of some place where the world was in balance before that's where the aim is to get to I-
1: No, I I think that was part of a mistaken discourse of of kind of um, the the, the grassroots environmental movement for too long, that, that there was some sort of golden past that we need to go back to. That doesn't mean that there isn't some... Wisdom that we throw out, like we as as humanity, we have the tendency to overswing the pendulum. We 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 fix on one particular way of seeing the world and 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 doing things, and then the problems build up with that particular way of doing things, and eventually we get to a point that we call a paradigm shift, and then we we swing the pendulum to the other extreme, and in the process we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, and I think one of the things we, we've done when we moved into the modern technological age with the scientific revolution is that we threw out some indigenous uh, long-term wisdom around how to live in place, how to live within the community of life. And we called it primitive indigenous knowledge that had nothing to teach us. And now we're beginning to see that maybe these cultures that managed to live in a place for 10,000 years had something to teach us but that doesn't mean that we all now have to go back and live like the hopis far from it we need to combine the best of modern uh, renewable technologies and clean tech with that deeper wisdom and and so it's it's not a moving back it's a moving forward into synthesis um bringing some of these insights into the modern world yes and, yes. and, and you said earlier um, basically everything is an intervention action or inaction we all yes regenerative has a dimension to it that is very design focused on how do we transform the system how do we do not just disruptive innovation but transformative innovation that that envisions and creates whole new systems of doing things but it does so with the all-important understanding that we are part of this complex system called life life as a planetary process so it it is at the same time enormously audacious and extremely humble. It, underst- it understands that, like in my in my book, designing regenerative cultures. Um, when I started working with, on the on the book, I asked myself the question: How can I write anything here that is still meaningful in twenty or twenty five or thirty years time? And I began to realize that with our focus on quick answers, silver bullet solutions, we might have it the wrong way around. Maybe the, the cultural guidance system, the compass for long-term survival on this planet is not a series of answers and solutions, but it's a series of questions that we have to keep asking ourselves because the system keeps evolving and things change. So often in history, we've seen that yesterday's solutions have become today's problems. So maybe even our best thought of and best intended green solutions of today will, sooner or later, bring up unforeseen consequences. Well, absolutely.
0: And, yes. Yeah. And
1: so so, so in, in, in my book, I end up almost with, in every chapter, rather than having a summary statement, I have a summary set of questions. So there are 250 questions in the book. And I think the, these questions will be still valid in 30 years' time. And we just have to keep living the questions and with sensitivity to place and local culture, keep doing the best we can.
0: Yes, at the heart of what you're saying is this tension because on the one hand it's five past 12 and on the other hand rushed solutions and uh, unintended consequences are an unhappy marriage. Um I'm interested also in the, you know, in the the ideas of uh Bateson, the systems approach and, you know, Maturana and Varela and maybe uh, could you talk a little bit about at a pretty general level about this and, and what are the lessons do you think for us in their thinking?
1: One of the key things that comes out of the so-called Santiago theory of cognition, which was um, proposed by um, Umberto Maturano and Francisco Varela, is that it is a scientific theory that helps us to bridge the Cartesian split, the, the, the split between mind and body, humanity and nature, self and world. Um, it addresses that our... Um, idea of reality that is based on this idea that perception is you open your eyes and there's a world out there and it just comes in and you see what's out there and then then you respond to it is actually a a oversimplifying um, uh, model of reality that in every act of perception there's an act of conception that we have organizing ideas that help us to structure what we see what the world is that we participate in and that actually means that there's scientific proof that we are co-creating our own reality. We we are, because we're part of this complex whole that is continuously evolving, our mental activity and the way we tell stories about who we are and what there is to interact with actually affect the playing field. And... Um, this is this has now been demonstrated in in so many of the different scientific disciplines there are, there are ways to talk about this in the language of quantum physics there are um, ways to talk about it in the language of complexity theory and um in psychology cognitive science all all of that and and so we in a way as a civilization we need to catch up with the cutting edge science and um Create now the infrastructures that respond to that kind of reality, which is is a reality that is much more. The, the, the um, Vietnamese monk Thit Nhat Han coined this term interbeing. Um, so we we aren't separate from the world. We we inter are with the world, and and that also takes us in in terms of ethical understanding to a uh, insight that whatever I like the most. Um, enlightened self interest is by caring for all of humanity and the community of life, by caring for my local ecosystem, that is the most effective effective way to care for myself and my family and my, those closest to my heart. So it's, it's a complete shift in perception that makes us understand that um, what we do to the world, we ultimately do to each other and this idea of um, the competitive mindset that, that it's all about competitive advantage is 20, 20th century thinking, and 21st century thinking is to work towards collaborative advantage and win-win-win solutions. We 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 don't live in a zero-sum world. We can create a non, non-zero-sum world. We, we we can actually create solutions where everybody benefits: the individual, the community, and the environment.
0: Absolutely. Now, what what in your view is the role of government and regulation in this world the approach you're talking about being a very bottom-up approach you know i'm just wondering what role do you see for for the government and regulation
1: um to one one extent it's it's enabling the local to local regional to regional national to nation to nation collaboration so we need to deregulate the way that we we work with um, intellectual property, because good ideas need to spread quickly and and need to um, be accessible by people all around the world. Um, The most underused resource on the planet is the frontal lobes of 5 billion poor that don't have access to the kind of privileged education that you and I have had um so if we if we create uh, like one role of government would have to be to enable true collaboration across uh, humanity to enable um collective intelligence to really uh, do its best so we can wisely respond to this crisis um it's it's also about um carefully looking at how do we re- reopen the box of international trade treaties that currently make it make it hard to create a healthy type of protectionism in a region that um, allows the growth of regional economies because they don't have to compete in an uneven playing field which, with economies of scale that that um, are basically not fully costing all the environmental damage that that type of production system actually has. So we, we, we need much more to shift policies towards really including all the environmental and social costs of the mistaken production system that we currently have in order to level the playing field for um, the technologies that we need to shift into. it's this, We're still subsidizing um, fossil fuels and nuclear at a much, much higher rate than we're subsidizing renewables. And that's completely anachronistic. And um, so, so government, for me, should... Look at how to again facilitate the devolution towards a more region-centric but globally collaborative way of organizing the the, the human affairs.
0: And what about the role of markets here, Daniel?
1: The, one of the the big issues I also work a lot with with UNESCO through through the organization called Gaia Education I mentioned earlier, and and one of the things I've um, worked on is, is a set of flashcards that. Um, help people to facilitate conversations at the local scale about implementing the SDGs, and the SDGs are wonderful. 17 goals that that would, um, if implemented everywhere, definitely create a, a better world. But one of the SDGs, SDG number eight, um, is worded out continued economic growth and good work, and the the crux of the issue is that we need to, and we're beginning to again, that um, the the, the, the genie is out of the box. We have a fundamentally dysfunctional economic system, and also the way that the markets are working right now is fundamentally dysfunctional. We we cannot continue with a currency um, currencies created on a debt basis um, out of nothing with uh, differential interests for deposits and loans, because in that structurally we have created a system that requires economic growth. That's why we're we're not daring to question this this golden cow, because we've currently created a system that if we don't continue to grow at least 3% per, um, per annum, we have a collapse of our economy. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to have the conversation about creating the new economic system with different types of monetary systems. Again, probably a whole portfolio of currencies that are Regional, national, and local um, that are integrated, and we need to look at how how to create um, a economic system that actually includes all the environmental and social costs and incentivizes regenerative activity. So, regenerating soils, regenerating social cohesions, regenerating local and regional economies, and disincentivizes um, destructive and degenerative processes. So, there's there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done in the field of economics that it's actually where the highest leverage point is and and what we're seeing right now is that there is a there are lots of funds moving into green technologies but we're still unless we have the conversation about how to redesign our economic and monetary system we're moving deck chairs deck chairs on the titanic um it it is a fundamentally important conversation that, that needs to happen and is, is already happening with the New Economics Foundation and, and lots of other um, think tanks around the world are looking at alternative indicators and alternative models for, for a better economic system.
0: Absolutely. Now, I understand at the level of community um, or indeed, maybe village, um, idea of a regenerative culture. I guess, in a sense, it gets trickier at the level of town, or the city, nation, um, and so forth. I'm just wondering what examples you could point to that you find inspiring about, you know, something that's grown from a community and has become either directly through, through in its own locality or, or, or more broadly has grown and,
1: Um, Well, I mean, one one of the examples of large scale ecosystems regeneration that is often quoted is um, in an area of um, over a thousand square kilometers in China called the Loos Plateau. The Chinese government um, started a process in 1995 to reforest and regrow the ecosystem's functions in a in an area that is very much like southern southwestern um, Spain Almeria um dry almost desertified um very eroded landscapes and if you look at the before after picture of what the Leus plateau looked like in 1995 and what it looked like in 2009 um you, that's the picture that brings people gives people hope because um it's turning a desert into a very productive, lush green landscape, and and this kind of work um, has been taken up. It's been documented by the Chinese American filmmaker John Lu. There's a, a film online called Green Gold for anybody who wants to learn more about this. And the the Common Land Foundation in the Netherlands have created a four returns uh, economic strategy for this type of l- large scale regional regeneration, both in terms of ecosystems and um, and uh, economic regeneration, how to make it possible. And they, they work in a number of case study sites. They have a case study project in Australia, another one in South Africa and another one in Southwestern Spain. And um, these are, to my mind, s- steps towards Showing, demonstrating that, that the multiple benefits of, of this kind of uh, approach, and then in terms of because you mentioned that so far it's difficult to find examples at at the at larger scales. Um, my friend and colleague Habajira De wrote, wrote a book called Regenerative Cities, and he's been involved in looking at the f- um, footprint of London, and and as for for a long time, advocated that cities around the world need to really just as patrick had suggested 110 years ago need to think of themselves as cities within regions and and work um to build more and more self-reliance at the regional scale um closing the loops of the of the 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 materials that the city uses and the energy used in the city in a way that that most of the materials and most of the energy are regionally generated and, and this is, there are cities like, like um, I th- have it worked with the city of Melbourne, um, and they've had massive improvements taking this approach. And there, there are plenty of cities around the world. This the C50 network that started as cities in response to, um, or C40 it was called, uh, um, in response to climate change, are working in this kind of way at the, at the city scale. So, um, interesting, yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's very interesting, uh, to see, to see examples like this. And I'd certainly like to find out more about the work, certainly in London. Now, what about genetic engineering and what about GM foods? What, what's your view on that in, in this regenerative, cultural, kind of philosophical perspective? Where does it fit in? How do you evaluate something like that?
1: Um, resilience is all about diversity in any kind of system. And any technology that homogenizes and reduces redundancies in the system leaves us fragile and and more vulnerable in the future. So many of the approaches that have been taken by large um, multinationals that, that favor uh, um, industrial agriculture based on G- GM. Uh, manipulated plants is to eradicate diversity, to even make it illegal to do local seed savings and keep the variety of plant species, which are humanity's collective inheritance. Um, so that approach, I'm very much opposed to. Uh, but I think we need a nuanced conversation around um, things like synthetic biology. Uh, I think it for, for me transgenics where you implant a rat's gene into a tomato in order to create a slightly different tomato with a maybe longer shelf life for me that is extremely dangerous and in a in a a very reductionist way of understanding biology and we don't really know the um, outcomes that could have but i'm also not in favor of the the kind of Entire, being entirely against all forms of synthet- um, synthetic biology and um, genetic uh, engineering, it just we need to have a much more um, nuanced conversation around what makes sense and what doesn't make sense, and and one of the underlying principles has to be, we need to maintain diversity and redundance in the system, because that is what, when, when catastrophes hit, which will hit, when disruptions through terrorism or through um, environmental issues occur, it, the more diverse of a system we have, the more um, decentralized and redundant our key needs are being met, the, the easier, um, of a time we have in responding to these crises.
0: Yes, I think uh, it's, it's worth distinguishing, really, isn't it, between the underlying, uh, I guess, what you could call technology and and how it's been applied by large multinational corporations. Another uh, issue you, you touched on um, was nuclear energy, and I'm just wondering, again, do you have a view on that from a philosophical perspective?
1: Um, well, the feedstocks for nuclear Energy are also non-renewable feedstocks, and I think by now, after a century of the age of oil, um, it's time to learn the lesson that there is a message in the word non-renewable feedstock. <laughs> it's non-renewable, meaning we will run out of it. So, to uh, potentially as a as a um, transition technology, I I'm I'm not very much an expert on on the different more the newer generations of nuclear technology i know that they're working on thorium reactors and 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 some type of um nuclear technologies that may be less impactful but uh we have another option we can just go straight to renewables and it might just make more sense to focus on something that is entirely renewable and recyclable, rather than something that we sooner or later will run out of. I think one of the other things that we have stopped to pay attention to in this pendulum swing that I mentioned earlier um, is that we've lost what what Peter Schwartz called the art of the long view. We um, we are thinking far too, because we have political and economic cycles that are around four. Years maximum, or if somebody gets re-elected, it might be eight or twelve years. Um, it it means that some of the really important decisions that we need to make for the future of humanity are decisions that um, again Native American wisdom takes it that the Iroquois nations made decisions based on the seventh unborn generation. Um, I think we can we can learn something from that thinking. We need to create into your question about policy earlier, we need we need new types of governmental or policy-making organizations, kind of um, councils of, of global elders that um, hold us on track for decisions that really are long-term generational decisions. And so if we start redesigning, if we are forced now because of climate change and resource depletion to redesign our system of production and consumption, we might as well work on as circular and as renewable a system as possible thinking not how do we meet our needs in 2050 2070 but how do we create a system now that could actually still work in 2200 in 20 in, in 2800 it's it's a it's a whole new way of thinking about how do we work with what we've got we've got coming uh, current solar income We've got wind power, marine energy, gravity, all sorts of energy sources that if we put our collective ingenuity to it, we, we, we can run a civilization on, on those powers. So so again, I don't see the need to go into um, nuclear energy research in too much detail because um, we were better off looking at the long term and, and basing our um, energy needs on renewables. Similarly in terms of material culture, um, a friend of mine from the International Futures Forum has looked at the periodic table and went through it element by element in terms of the depletion curves and the current known reserves and then what is actually economical in terms of exploiting those reserves and what is mineralogically feasible in terms of exploiting those reserves. and. It doesn't matter whether they run out in 10 years, like um, uh, Indium um, or or, um, uh, Coltane, all all those things that we use in our IT technology, um, or whether they run out in 50 or 60 or 120 years. A really wisely thinking humanity that is creating a system for the future should now be thinking about what are the elements that we can definitely work with in 150 200 and 300 years and when you do that work you come down to basically four elements um, carbon hydrogen oxygen and nitrogen and in terms of blue sky long-term innovation we need to look now into creating a new type of chemistry that is green chemistry based on fully recycling these four elements and to make all our high technology and all our products of service and products of use in, in a way that we can melt them down at the end and with the least loss of material, there's a, there's a, there's a physics limit, there'll always be some loss, but um, with the least loss of material, keep recycling them. That, for yeah. me, is is really long-term thinking. And that is, that's when we shift from just sustaining the current system's sustainability to working regeneratively.
0: Yes, I did an interview with William McDonough just recently and
1: uh, fascinating
0: insights into all of that. Now, finally, maybe just to come back to something that you mentioned at the beginning – in this in your the talking about uh regeneration and and talking about some of the ideas is this question i guess of consciousness and also a paradigm paradigm shift and i guess with these ideas you're living through them we're seeing change whether or not you know we're reaching any real you know how much momentum there really is do you think we are reaching a tipping point
1: um we've been talking about tipping points for a long time um I think Fritjof Capra even has a book from 1990 or 1991 called The Tipping Point. Um, I think we're beginning to see a critical mass. Um, Just as the classic adoption bell curve, if if you get 16, 17 percent, you begin to create a dynamic that the rest will follow. And um, I think the framing, just to be very clear on this, the framing of a paradigm shift is still the pendulum type framing. Um, Donella Meadows wrote a wonderful article, um, "Places to Intervene in a System," and and th- that article has two versions. The first version, the the highest leverage point to intervene in a system is at the level of the paradigm. And then she did later in life a second version of the same article where she added another point that is even a higher leverage point, and that is to move beyond paradigms, which means we 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 stop overswinging the pendulum and throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And we start to understand that because we're participants in this complexity, we need different lenses. We need multiple ways of knowing. We need a science of qualities, not just a science of quantity quantities. We need um, holistic approaches and not just reductionist approaches. But we don't need either or. We don't, All these long lists of we're going from this to that, normally it's both and. We just need to wisely choose what paradigm and what way of seeing gives us what kind of information and be aware that each way of seeing has its own blind spots, its own shortcomings. And so a more multifaceted, more complex understanding of our role as participants in this complex reality needs to work with these multiple ways of knowing. And and I think this is this is where science is moving, this is where evolutionary biology is moving. And um, and I think we're we're beginning more and more people are waking up to to this kind of perspective and i've I've just been in in Lyon at a meeting um that Ashoka organized called the the Global Change Leaders on um driving transformative innovation in education and I think we shouldn't forget that that is one of the most wisely invested activities. And, and leverage points. If we if we transform our education system, if we if we teach our children to collaborate instead of to compete, if we give them the tools for working together on the solutions that will create the brighter future for all, with nobody being left behind. We need to redesign our education system. We we have a completely outdated education system. And 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 again, it, it makes me hopeful that an organization like Ashoka has, has brought two hundred and fifty educators from around the world together to launch this process. Because um, it is the, the the way that we create like we we will hand a severely damaged planet to the next generation hopefully by the time we hand it over we've already started the process of regenerating it but the next generations will have to continue this this is this is a multi-generational project and and so education is key and and the the consciousness shift or expansion of consciousness to allow for multiple ways of knowing that that i all given value um is is key in all this What's
0: next for you, Daniel? You, uh, your book's out. You're are you researching a new project.
1: My, my 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 books haven't been out since May 2016, so um, it's it's time that I start thinking about the next book. Um, but I'm I'm very much enjoying the work I do with this organization called Guy Education, and um, one thing that I'm currently working on is the 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 flashcards to start conversations around local implementation of um of the SDGs um will now be supported with a, a manual of how to work with these flashcards so so that the process can um travel more Analog virally, that the people can become multipliers of, of this way of working, and um, and then this process i just mentioned with uh, with the um, Ashoka projects in education is something that I will put a lot of um, energy into, and I'm I'm also on the advisory council of the Ecosystem Restoration Camp Foundation, which is an organization that is aiming to set up with Common Land Foundation, who I mentioned earlier, uh, places around. The globe, where we demonstrate what can be done in in terms of the shift towards a circular biomaterials economy at the regional scale. I think there's a, so much innovation that needs to be done there, and um, I'm excited to get more companies on board. Um, the, I've, I've worked with some detergent companies and some and companies in the in the chemical industry um, cosmetics industry that, that are already understanding that, um, this regenerative regional approach is really where things are going and are investing, um, their long range innovation money into, into working with this. So, so that's, that's where I'm going the next couple of years.
0: Well, you've got a full plate there, Daniel, and I wish you the very best of success with all the great work you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing your vision with us today on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank
0: you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future
1: episodes.